Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, talks a lot about his wife's uh, brain tumor that she had and the surgery that came around it. So she had this massive surgery, and they did all the research to try to figure out, you know, who's going to be and how's it going to work. And they got the surgeon all picked out. And after after they picked the surgeon, but before they had the surgery. They found out that their brain surgeon was one of the top, if not the top brain surgeons in the world, which is kind of funny. We, we do that with surgery. Like we don't, I don't, I can't tell you how my doctor ranks in Spring Hill. Like they're the eighth best doctor in Spring Like I don't have any idea, but with surgeons, it seems like we're always trying to figure out who the best is or rank them, which is just kind of funny because these guys go to college and then they go to the med school and then they specialize in neurology and then they specialize in surgery. And after all that, we say, yeah, but are they any good? Well, of course they're good. They're a brain surgeon. I mean, every brain surgeon's good. You know what you do with the brain surgeons who are not good, right? You don't let them become a brain surgeon. Like it's brain surgery, after all. You don't just let them slide through that. So Gafkin said his uh, wife had an amazing team of doctors. So she had this brain surgeon, top in the world. And then underneath that, she also had an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Which she said kind of sounds like the guy who didn't make the cut for brain surgery. Like, why don't we just have you stick with the ear, nose, and throat? Like, I want to be a brain surgeon. No, let's just stick with the ear, nose, and throat. The things around the brain, Gaffigan says. Like, uh, so do I get the eyes? Do I get to work on that? No, no. We'll leave the eyes to the guy at LensCrafters. You just focus on the ear, nose, and throat. Just kind of, you know, simple it down for him. Gaffigan said he has a newfound respect now for, for doctors that he just didn't have before. You know, doctors spend their whole life training to help people, encourage people towards health and healing and wholeness. And he said, but unless we're really sick, we don't listen to anything they have to say. He said, I go to the doctor and I know what the doctor's going to say and I'm not going to do it. The doctor will say, Jim, you need to lose some weight. Not a chance. Well, Jim, you need to exercise more. Nope. Got anything else for me, doc? I'm not going to do that. Well, maybe you could eat better. Never going to happen, he says. And Gaffigan poses the question. He says, what other profession spends their whole life preparing to to help people, point them towards health and wholeness, only to have many of them walk out the door and not change anything. Now, this is a true story. I was listening to this bit as I'm driving down the road in my truck, and at this point, when Gaffigan says there's no other profession like that, I'm raising my hand like, I I think I know another profession just like that who spends their whole life trying to point people towards health and wholeness, and yet they don't listen to what I'm having to say, right? Uh, This is me too, by the way. I think a lot of us, unless we're really sick spiritually, will take some of the commands of God and just not really listen to them. We don't really do what they say. And the Bible doesn't shy away from this. In fact, James, Jesus' half-brother, spent his whole life growing up with Jesus. He'd heard Jesus talk ad nauseum, and yet he didn't follow him. He didn't listen to the things he said until after the resurrection. And then years later, James writes these words, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James says when we hear the words of God, we think that listening alone is enough, we think that it accomplishes anything. He said we've just fooled ourselves. It's self-deception. When you think that just listening to the words of God and not doing anything with it will we'll do it. We've got to put it into practice. Now, if you're just joining us, we're in week three of a series we've called Hangry. Now, we all know what hangry means, right? Hangry means right before lunch when you've not had enough to eat, right before dinner, when, in the late afternoon, you're getting kind of hungry, and then you find yourself getting irritable or snappy at your, at your uh, family or snappy at friends or coworkers because of the physical hunger leads you to be emotionally or relationally um, off, right? 
And we've asked the question, can a spiritual hunger do the same thing? Can somebody not get enough spiritual food and therefore have emotional or relational problems come out of that spiritual hunger? I, I think the Bible would say yes. And I would say to you, I've thought about this whole series. Each week is a different part of spiritual food or practice that we need to put into our life. And I think today's message will put James's words to the test more than any other message we'll do this whole series. I think, I think we're going to be tempted today to listen to the word and think that's enough and deceive ourselves by not putting it into practice. In fact, I think if you line up the whole series, we're going to be more likely to ignore today's message than maybe all the others put together because we just don't do what the Bible says in this area. And yet when we do it, when we put things off spiritually or, or wait till we're really sick and then we'll finally address that thing that we should have addressed all along, we're really just deceiving ourselves because God has told us all along what will make us whole and healthy and fulfilled and we're just not listening. Or we're listening and just not doing anything about it. I think we should do what he says. All right, so let's jump into it. In the, in the book of Exodus, God gave Moses and then through Moses to us, Ten commandments to follow. You've, you've heard these. So the first three are in a set. They're all about how to relate to God. No other gods before me. No idols. Don't idolize anything. And don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's the first three. The last five are how to treat other people. So don't kill people. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet other people's stuff. And then number five is kind of in, in the middle. It's kind of a bridge between the first, the two sections. It's how to treat your parents who are above you, but they're still another person. So you're to honor your father and mother. And all of those nine are huge. In fact, I would say to you, imagine for just a moment, what would it be like if you moved to another country and after you bought the house or landed the job or whatever, you discovered that one of those nine they thought didn't apply in their country. So like, if you want to steal other people's stuff, we're completely fine with that. So if you see some of your neighbors, just take it. Like if you see the lawn furniture, just grab it, put it in your yard. Or if you're in a store, just go ahead and take the stuff. We're, we're completely fine with that. I mean, can you imagine what kind of chaos would happen in a country where they just wiped that out? Or like, kill people. We're fine if you want to kill people. That's, that's you know, knock yourself out. Or knock them out. Whichever one you want to do. But just, just go ahead and do it. We think that's totally fine. I think the whole culture would unravel immediately. Really, with any of those. If any of those were taken off the table, chaos would ensue. And I think in America we would say that's a complete list. And if God had just given us nine commandments, that actually works out just fine. But God didn't give us nine. He gave us ten. We skipped over number four. Do you remember what number four is? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was a particular day where they would take a particular day to, to rest to, to reflect, to, to honor God, to spend time with God, to spend time with their family. They didn't do any work. Not only did they not go to the office to work or to the job site to work, they didn't do any work at their house. Like there was no work happening on the Sabbath. Now, in, in the Old Testament, it was always on Saturday. With the New Testament, the church began to worship God on Sunday. Honestly, I don't think it matters what day you give a Sabbath, but it's to take a day off to honor God and reflect on God. Now, I gave you the shorthand list of these 10. Uh, and some of them are really short commands, like what I gave you. Others got longer treatment in the Bible. 
Some got lots of explanation. And in fact, the Bible says that God carved the words of the Ten Commandments with his finger onto tablets of stone, which has to be painful. And yet, so every word has to count. Like, you're not going to throw in extra words. This is on stone tablets carved with my hand. And it's amazing to me how many words he gave to different commandments. You can go back and look, and look later in Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5. You can read those later. But let me just give you a graph of what this looks like. Take a look here. This graph shows how many words God gave to every commandment. So some are pretty straightforward. Like number six says, uh, thou shalt not kill. So it's pretty straightforward. If you kill somebody, you know you've killed them. Like that's, it's pretty clear. Uh, most people, even those who have killed people say, bad idea, shouldn't do that. So the Bible just says, don't do it. it takes four words. Thou sh- you shall not murder. This is not complicated. Adultery, stealing, lying, all pretty straightforward. But coveting, which is number 10 on the list, you see a tick up. It gets 31 words. Idol worship, number two, gets 82 words. And the biggest of them all, the granddaddy of them all, is the Sabbath, number four. It gets 99 words from God. So murder takes four words. Sabbath day gets 99, carved into stone by the hand of God himself. Now, I don't think God gave more words to some than others because they were more complicated. I don't think God gave some more, more words than others because they were more important. I think he gave them more words because he knew we would make excuses and loopholes and try to figure out a way to get around the commands of God. In fact, if you look at the chart here, the ones that jump up above the others is not idolizing things, and we're all tempted to do that, Remembering the Sabbath day, number five is to honor your father and mother. And we all have some loopholes a time or two with mom and dad. You, you don't know that guy or you wouldn't honor him either. And then number 10 is about coveting stuff. All those five that get extra words are all the things we want to do loopholes with. They're all the things we want to try to figure out a way to get out. And none of them more than the Sabbath day. Now let me ask you a question. If we can all imagine in our head what a society would look like, or at least try to imagine in our head, what a society would look like if it took one of the commandments away. You know, there's even a movie a couple of years ago, wasn't there, about what it would be like if one night everybody could murder whoever they wanted to? Like there was a whole movie about that. There was this whole crazy analogy about that. What would a country look like if they didn't value honesty or fidelity? It, it'd, be a, it'd be a terrible place to live. So why do we think that any of the others are optional? Why do most of us assume that nine out of the ten would be enough? That we could just skip the Sabbath and not feel an impact? It'll work out fine. If you look through the Bible, if you look through the life of Jesus, you consistently see Scripture disagreeing with the American church on that. You don't, you don't define backup in Scripture. I can give you example after example. Let me just give you a couple. Isaiah 58, verse 13 and 14. Verse 13, it's a common pattern in Scripture. Verse 13 gives a command. 14 gives the result of that command. This is a common thing in the Scripture, especially the Old Testament, where God will say, do this, and if you do, here's the results. If you don't do what I command, here's the results. That's a common pattern in Scripture. And you see that in Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. So let me show you the promise first. Verse 14 says... If you do what I say, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
Now, you know what verse 13 is because I've already set it up. You know it's something about the Sabbath, right? I've already taken the cat out of the bag on that one. But normally, if I hadn't done that and you were just reading along through Isaiah and got to verse 14, you would assume the command was something about purity or something about giving to the poor or something about uh, prayer or something like that. But look at what verse 13 actually says, the command of God. It starts with, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day. Now, what do feet have to do with the Sabbath? How do do your feet break the Sabbath? Well, by running you around all these different places. And if this was true before the invention of the automobile, can you imagine how true it is now? If feet got them off track with breaking the Sabbath, what's your car do? Like a modern translation of Isaiah 58 might say, if you just keep your car in the garage on my Sabbath... It'll go better with you. Because we don't always break the Sabbath on a day of the week by going into the office, but we stay, we go to the store or we run around for shopping or do our errands, we take our kids 20 places. Our car breaks the Sabbath a lot. Verse 13 continues, says, If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, God doesn't want the Sabbath to be a drudgery or an obligation or something you do just out of guilt. He wants it to be a delight. He wants it to be a great present to us. Do you remember when you were a kid, maybe like seven, eight, nine years old, and you had an older adult relative who who would give you presents at Christmas, and you never liked the Christmas present? Like, they just didn't get you. They didn't get eight-year-olds. And so you just knew, when I get this present... And sometimes you might even have your parents give you a coaching ahead of time, like, and I make sure you act like you like the present, whatever it's going to be. And so you'd open it, eight-year-old little boy, you'd open it up and be like, oh, great, another turtleneck. I love turtleneck, you know, whatever it is. But it, it wasn't something you really wanted. The Sabbath is not that. The Sabbath is a good gift from God. The Sabbath is designed for us to enjoy. The Sabbath is designed for, to be a delight for us. And God says, when you begin to see time off to reconnect with me as a drudgery or an obligation, you've missed the whole point. I don't think the Sabbath is is unenjoyable because it's not good. The Sabbath is unenjoyable because we just don't do it. The verse continues on. It says, if you honor the Sabbath by not going your own way and doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. When you and I treat that seventh day that we've devoted to God, whichever day you pick, as just a regular day, just like the other six, when we go our own way, do as we please, act, act like it's normal, talk about that day like it's normal. Just schedule things like we normally would on any other day. Scripture says we won't find our joy. We won't triumph on the, the heights of the land. Why? Because we, we weren't designed to work seven days a week. It's never how we were designed. Now again, most of us don't go into the office seven days a week. Most of us don't go into the classroom or into the job site or into the work seven days a week. Most of us don't do that. But far too many of us work seven days every day of every week. And we were never designed for that. And like the doctor, we have the option of saying, I'll get to that later. I'll, I'll lose those pounds. I'll, I'll eat better. I'll exercise better later. And yet God has told us all along what would make us whole and healthy and fulfilled and strong. We just don't believe him. 
And on days like today, we think, if I just listen to the word, then I've done what my part, and we've deceived ourselves. Now, I don't know what, how, how you would handle these things. Uh, I always, in, in when conversations like this, and messages like this, I'm always trying to think what your reaction is. Because I know this is kind of a one-sided argument or debate. Like, I'm telling you what I think the Bible says, and you're going to have some pushback. But you're always too polite and kind to yell out, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Which I appreciate, by the way. Don't start that. But, but you may be thinking, that's unrealistic, or you don't understand, or here's why I disagree. I'm always trying to think about those things. And I know the argument that some of you are thinking right now, that Jesus never gave us commands about the Sabbath. He did that about a lot of Old Testament commands. He never commanded us to honor the Sabbath in a certain way like he did the others. But let me push back just a minute on that. We have seven different examples in the Bible, in the Gospels. Seven, only seven, of Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath day. Now Jesus healed thousands of people. We read about him healing lines of people, crowds of people, one after the other, well up into the night on all the other days, but we only read about seven during the Sabbath. So if he healed thousands, we can certainly believe that he probably healed hundreds on a Monday or hundreds on a Tuesday, hundreds on a Wednesday, but only seven on the Sabbath day. Why, did, why do we only read about Jesus healing seven individual people on individual occasions on the Sabbath? Because those were the exceptions. I mean, his enemies, the religious leaders, were constantly watching, ready to pounce on any bit of something they considered work because the Sabbath was a big deal to them, and yet only seven times were they upset about him doing healing on the Sabbath because normally he didn't. Normally he didn't interact with the crowds of people. Normally he didn't heal one after the other after the other. Normally he didn't do those things on the Sabbath. Normally on the Sabbath he honored God by resting. And by connecting with him and reading the scriptures, going to synagogue, normally he didn't violate their rules. Now, the, the Jews, this is important for me to tell you, the Jews had uh, the, the laws from God, considered like a pothole that you want to stay out of. And then outside of the pothole, they had set up cones. Uh, to, like, if you don't break the, through the cones, then you won't go into the pothole. And then they got to where they lost track of which one was which, and they set up more cones and more cones. So seven times, Jesus broke through the cones. He never got in the hole. He never violated the law of God, but he, he violated their rules, and they didn't really see the difference. But we want to read about that seven times, because he didn't get very close to the pothole either. Now, one other time we did read about him getting in trouble on the Sabbath. That's in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus and his friends got really fussed at, because they were walking along the road on the Sabbath, and they cut across the edge of a field, grain field, wheat, and as they're walking along, you know, wheat's about this high, and as they're walking along, the disciples were hungry and just let their hand kind of drag and grab some grain and threw it in their mouth, and the religious leaders went bananas. Now, I want you to remember a day when you did less work than that. Because the the religious leaders said that was a violation. They were working. They were picking grain on the Sabbath. And we read about that example because that was an exception. Normally, they didn't do that much. See, Jesus didn't teach us rules about the Sabbath, but Jesus modeled the Sabbath for us. Jesus modeled rest. Jesus modeled taking a day and setting it aside for God. And then not only, not only that one day, Jesus modeled rest throughout the week, and then he told us to follow him. And that's why this matters. It's because he said, if you want to live for me, you've got to live the way I live. 
It didn't just affect the one day a week. It was all through the week, a different model. Let me show you. Luke chapter 5 says this. While Jesus was in one of the towns, this wasn't on a Sabbath day, by the way, a man came along who was covered in leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged Jesus, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus loved this man. And so he reached out his hand and he touched the man. He said, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy, the skin disease, left him completely. I would have loved to have seen that. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now Jesus does this a lot, and I've got to stop and ask the question, why does Jesus tell people not to tell anybody that they've been healed? Like if you're trying to draw a crowd, wouldn't that be what you'd want to do? If I ever heal one of you of leprosy, it's going on Facebook. I just want you to know ahead of time, like that's going to happen because that's a cool deal. I mean, we'd have marriage crowds the next Sunday. That's going to happen for me. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Why is that? Well, he healed him because he had compassion on the man. He healed him because he had the ability to take away his debilitating, terrible illness. But he didn't want him telling everybody because he didn't want people coming just to see the magic show. He didn't want people coming just to get the free bread or just to watch the heal, people be healed. He wanted them to come and connect with God. He wanted them to come and hear his teaching, but he didn't want all the sideshow stuff. And yet, the next verse, verse 15 says, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. And you know that's true. If you've got a guy who's, who's been out of the, the public scene because he's been isolated with this ter- you know, quarantine, this terrible illness, and now he's with his family, and now he's going out to restaurants with them, and now he's going to work and getting a job, you know everybody's going to say, what happened to this guy? He was, so, he was about to die, and now he's completely whole. And you know you're going to hear the news. Now, I know Jesus was trying to avoid this, right? Jesus didn't want people coming for the sideshow. But if you're, if you're Jesus, if you're a pastor, if you're wanting to save the world, what's better than this? Crowds of people coming miles and miles to hear you and be healed and connect with God. Like, what's better than that? And yet Jesus has a choice to make. Jesus had a way of living his life that saw him regularly pulling out to connect with God. And yet crowds got in the way of that because they all wanted his attention. They all wanted his help. They all wanted his guidance. They all wanted his healing. And for us, we have some of the same battles that Jesus had here, where it's not the decision, we don't find ourselves pushing the red line because of bad things we're choosing to do. We find ourselves pushing the red line, living in unhealthy ways, not connecting with God, because there's so many good options for us to jump into. Things that if we did would be a good thing. People who really need our help, people who would like us to come with them and do this thing. It's not hard to say no to bad things. It's awfully hard to say no to good things. And Jesus here is faced with a choice of what to do about all these good things. How do I honor God? How do I live a healthy life with all these good things? And the next verse, I want you to notice a key word here. The next verse, see what it says. It says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus had crowds of people coming and he withdrew to lonely places to pray. It says he often withdrew to, to get away from all the crowds. Now, do you, do you notice the key word there? There's no way for you to know for sure. It's just see if you can pick my brain. I think there's a key word in that sentence. I think all nine words in that sentence are huge. Like the, the sentence starts with the word but. 
which means Jesus went a different direction. So everybody was pointing him one direction. The crowds wanted him to go one way. The disciples wanted him to go one way. His opportunities pointed one way. But Jesus went a different way. That's key, because if you're going to follow God, there's going to be moments where everything's pointing you one direction. The, the waves and the, the, the current, if you will, are going to put you this way, but God calls you over here. So that's a big word. It says he withdrew. So he was intentional about getting space in his life. He was intentional about carving out time for God. It wasn't like, well, if i got nothing else going, I'll pray. He withdrew from the options to, to go away. It says he went to lonely places. That's a key word. Because if the lonely places means he's away from the crowds. And if Jesus needed that, if Jesus needed the mental and spiritual space in first century Israel, which is much quieter, much slower than, than modern day Spring Hill, if that's true, how much more do we need that space? And then it says he withdrew to pray. The point is not just to get a break. The point is not just to take a nap. That's all fine. Get a break, take a nap. The point is, he, got to, he had to pull away to recalibrate. He had to pull away to connect with God, to reconnect with God. He had to pull away to be alone with his Lord. Jesus knew that to be spiritually healthy, Jesus knew that to avoid spiritual hanger, if you want to fit in the series, he had to carve away time to spend with his Father. And if that's true of Jesus, man, we've got to... We've got to We've got to change our approach on that. But none of those are the words I wanted you to notice. Do you notice the word that I didn't point out? It's the word often. It says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This wasn't a one-time event. This wasn't he had a great crowd, so he pulled away. This was all the time. He was regularly doing that. Mark chapter 2 shows another time of the crowds coming, and early in the morning he leaves, and disciples were looking all over like, what are you doing? The crowd's waiting for you to come back and heal them. He's like, let's go to the next town. He often withdrew to lonely places to pray. And here's the question that, that I wrestled with this week and has really kicked me in the face, if I'm honest. If a biographer was writing my story, if a biographer was writing your story, is that line in there anywhere, in any chapter? And if it's not, why not? I mean, I... I <laughs> I did a thought experiment. Do this with me. I thought about what's, what's going to happen if I stand before God one day and he's going to say to me, Andy, well done. You made a lot of mistakes. You didn't do things the right way a lot of times. I wish you'd have done things differently maybe. But because you're with Jesus, well done. Come in. Enjoy my happiness. I, I think I'm going to hear that. Not because of me, but because of him. But in my thought experiment, I'm picturing God then saying, can we talk about this refusal on your part to get away to lonely places and pray like Jesus did? Can we, can we talk about that? And I'm picturing the excuses that I give to my Lord in that moment, and they all sound pitiful. Now, maybe you have better reasons than I do, but I just did a thought experiment with that, and I thought maybe you, you could benefit from this too. All of my examples start with, well, sure, God, Jesus needed that, but, which is always a bad sign. Anytime you start a sentence to God with that, that remark, it's never good. So let's just think through this. Like, like the first one might be, Jesus, sure, Jesus needed that, but I just can't. I've got really big responsibilities. And my question is, does Jesus roll his eyes in heaven? I think he probably does. I don't know if he does or not. I don't want to get struck by lightning. I think he probably does. Like the Bible says that God is at the throne room of heaven, and on his right side is Jesus. 
And so I'm picturing me standing there telling God all these big responsibilities I have and Jesus rolling his eyes off to one side. I'm picturing that. I don't know if that's how that happens or not. It just sounds so crazy when you think about it in comparison to the Lord. Or, sure, Jesus needed that, but I just don't need it. I'm a very spiritual person on my own. (laughs) Oh, sure. That makes a lot of sense. Or, sure, Jesus needs that, but that's that's just really unrealistic for me. I've got a lot of people counting on me. Can you picture saying that to Jesus? I mean, how, how ridiculous does any of that sound? I don't have a single good excuse. I have a lot of excuses. I don't have a single good excuse that I can present to God of why I'm not following his son in this key area. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, and I just don't. Jesus honored one day a week to rest, to recalibrate, to spend time with people he loved, to spend time with God, and often I just don't. And God knew all along what would make me healthy, and whole, and fulfilled, and I just don't listen. I titled this message, Breaking Point, and I think that word break is fascinating, because it can have multiple definitions. So a break can be a disruption from work, right? Like you take a two-week vacation, that's a break. Or at lunchtime, you take a break, and you go eat your lunch, or you take a 15-minute slot in the afternoon, that's a break, it's a disruption from work. But a break can also be a pedal designed to slow things down, like you pump the brake, now, I know, settle down. I know that's spelled different. Just don't send me the email. I get that. Just go along with me. Or break can also be a crack, like a broken bone or a broken vase or a broken spirit. I think it's interesting how those three definitions of the word break go together. You can take a break or you can pump the break or you can break down. So when I say breaking point, which of those do you hear? I think they all apply. Are you at the point where you need to take a break? Like life is just coming at you and you've got to take a break. Or maybe you know you're going too fast and you need to pump the break. Or maybe you're at the point where you're about to break. Too many things coming all at you at once. And you were never designed to carry them all. I mean, those things go together. And just like we do with a physician just like we probably do with dentists or trainers or dietitians, we hear what, what we're being told to do to be healthy, and we're like, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm, I'm okay for now until we get a really bad diagnosis, an ultimatum, and then sometimes it's too late. I, I think God would want us to do one of the first two before we get to the last one. Let me give you a formula here. Uh, this, this is true of any part of your life, but I think it's true here as well. Change happens when the pain of changing is less than the pain of ch- not changing, the pain of staying the same. Right? I mean, that's, that's just true. So if, if you make a change and that's going to hurt, you're not going to change unless the pain of staying the same seems bigger than the pain of staying. This is true of doctors. This is true of dentists. This is true of uh, nutritionists. And it's also true spiritually. So what's it going to be? That's my question for us. What's it going to be? Which break are we going to choose? Are we going to choose to take a break or pump the break? Or are we going to choose to break down? Because change in this area 
If you were to say one day a week, and again, maybe it's, maybe it's Sunday, maybe it's a different day for you. I don't know if that matters in God's eyes. But this one day a week, I'm going to set aside for God, and I'm not going to do any work on that day. If you do that, that's going to be hard. If you say, I'm going to often withdraw to lonely places and pray, that's going to be hard. People are going to fuss. You're going to disappoint people because they were, they were expecting you to do things on that day that now you're not going to do, and either they or somebody else is going to have to do. It, you may have a boss who's upset. You may have a kid who's upset. You may have a spouse that's upset. You may have friends that are upset, but you're, you're going to upset some people. Plans will have to get changed. You'll have to say no not only to bad things that you don't want to do, you'll have to say no to good things that you would love to do. Change is going to be hard. But which definition of break are you going to pick? Because I think for far too many of us, and I think you're seeing it right now in our culture, you know, the, the birds are coming home to roost on this issue. We've lived culturally in a way that dishonors God for far too long, even inside the church. And it's all coming home against us. I think this is also foundational to the gospel. Jesus says that we're weary and burdened. We're stressed out. We're burned out. We're looking to this or that to change. We're looking to them to change. We're looking to this relationship to get different. But maybe, maybe the change needs to be in us. Maybe God has told us all along what it would make, take to make us whole and healthy and, and fulfilled and strong. And we've listened to those words. I've not told you anything probably that you're not aware of today. And yet we've just not done anything about them. And the result of us not listening is not only us being deceived... The point is us breaking down spiritually, relationally, emotionally. We're hangry. Let me clarify something that may not have been clear. This is not a self-help message. So my goal for you today is not just that you would rest more, get a full eight hours of sleep, or take a nap on occasion, or that you would set boundaries, or any of that. That's all good. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. Read a book for that. I'm sure there's some great ones out there. What I'm talking about is you and I were never designed to live life without God. He created you with the need for him inside of you. Whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you realize it or not, whether you admit it or not, that's true. That's how you've been built by your loving Father, Creator. And so when we go, 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 without any breaks to withdraw to lonely places and pray, when we go, go, go and never take a day where the whole day is designed to honor him and to rest and reflect and recalibrate on him, when we take all of that, when we think, you know, I'll, I'll check in with God on a Sunday and then I'll go a week or two and I'll check in with God on a Sunday, that's not enough. You can, you can go every Sunday, it's not enough. God designed to walk with you. And if you're living life without him, there's going to be a break coming. Not because God wants to punish you, but because God wants to draw you close. As a pastor, I see far too many people right at the breaking point and they're looking to this or that or them to change it. It's him. Some of you are not connected to God because you, you're not willing to accept him. You've got a doubt or an obliga- you know, a thing you're not sure about. I'd love to talk you through that. I think there's good answers to help you work through your doubts. 
Some of you are not walking with God because you're just too busy. You believe in God. You've committed to God, but you're not walking with him. You're not taking time away to pray. You're not taking time away to devote a day at a time. That's ridiculous. And there'll come a moment when you'll look back at today and wish you had done something different. And I would prefer that be sooner rather than later for you because I care about you. Would you bow your head and let's pray together. God, I pray that you wouldn't apply any guilt or, or shame or any of that I don't want any conviction that doesn't come from you. But God, if there's anything in us, starting with me, that needs changing in this area or, frankly, any area, that I pray that we're receptive, God, in this moment to your voice. And we will hear it and we will obey it, not because it's from anything from me, but because it's from you. And God, if the words ring true, if there's, if there's something in us that, that peaks that moment, that we would, we would follow through, not just in this setting, but in our life. We'd talk with family. We'd talk with our friends. We'd talk with, with you. We'd pray about it. We'd, we'd get counsel. God, for those who are not walking with you right now, because they've never accepted you, because they have something in their life that they're hanging on to, with more fervency and passion than they feel for you because they're too busy, because they're too distracted. Whatever it is that keeps us from you, God, would you help today be a day we lay those things down and we find our strength and our support on on your foundation. I pray that's true for every one of us today. In the name of Jesus.